If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. What happened on Sunday in London, this act of terrorism and Islamophobia, is sickening. It is heartbreaking. It's hard to find words that are enough. Well, good afternoon, folks. Rob Brickenbridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. That, of course, the Prime Minister commenting on what happened in London, Ontario on Sunday. Further details that we learned about yesterday. It is heartbreaking. It is sickening. It appears to be, based on what police have told us, an act of uh, Islamophobia, hate motivated violence of the worst kind targeting a family just because of what they choose to believe in targeting them because of their islamic faith deliberately running over them with a vehicle nine-year-old boy in hospital and the only survivor of this you just think about that for a moment i mean it is yeah it's heartbreaking his sister dead his parents dead grandparent dead it's a horrific act of murderous hate. The Prime Minister also called it terrorism, which raises an interesting question here. Should we view it as that? What are the implications of viewing it as that? It's, it's a crime. It's the worst crime. It's a hate-motivated crime. Is it an act of terrorism? It, it's a term that obviously has some specific legal meaning. There is a charge of terrorism that exists. But how and when to apply it, it has been contentious. Anyway, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Leah West, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, focusing on national security and intelligence at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Professor West, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's no doubt that this is a horrific crime. I, I think it shocked people right across the country. It, it appears to be based on, on what we understand uh, from the police investigation, motivated by hate. Uh, what, what's the proper context to put this kind of a horrific act in? Well, um, besides all the things that you just said that I totally agree with, um, we don't yet know, at least publicly, whether or not the elements of terrorism offenses that are listed in the criminal code can be made out. And I understand the desire to use the label terrorism because a segment of the population is terrorized by this act of violence. Right. And it and it uh, justified for the prime minister to want to comfort and call out that kind of irreparable act of violence targeted at a community, but there are legal definitions that have to be considered before terrorism charges are laid and elements that have to be made out based on evidence. And while intent to commit murder may have been very, very obvious from the scenes, from what was collected from, you know, the initial um, steps of the investigation, Mm -hmm. Because of the complexity of proving a terrorism charge, it usually takes a little bit longer 
um, to, especially um, in a situation where this isn't an investigation that was meant to stop an act of violence. The investigation only starts now once the act of violence commits. We need that investigation to take place, to gather evidence, to see whether or not the elements can be proven. And there are three elements for terrorist activity. First, that there has to be intentional serious violence intended to cause death or serious bodily harm. There's also property damage elements, but that's not necessary here. Hmm. That the motivation behind that violence is political, religious, or ideological, um, at least in part, and that the action be taken to intimidate a public, the public or a segment of the population. And then if there is evidence of all of that, the director of public prosecution, so basically the person within the federal government responsible for all of uh, federal prosecutions, would need to sign off on pursuing those charges, which would take some time, which is why I don't think we can read in too much yet from a terrorism offense not being charged here. Right. And so it, it, it could still apply, I think, is, is, is what you're saying. But partly, I, I think there's, there's a tendency to use the term almost as a way of, uh, you know, sort of a broader societal denunciation. I think, you know, we, we use the word for that, that purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, look, if this individual is convicted of, of you know, four counts of first-degree murder, in terms of any sort of additional sentence that's going to keep him behind bars longer, that, that might also be a moot point. I, I guess what might be the, the investigative or even maybe the, you know, the national security imperative behind a terrorism charge in a case like this? Well, it is important to signal um, to Canadians that if this is terrorism, regardless of the fact of whether or not it'll add any time at sentencing, that like crimes and crimes that fall under the classification of terrorism be treated as such, right? And it is important to signal that terrorism can be committed and motivated by um, ideologies, religions, and political motivations across the entire spectrum. Um, And what we've seen historically with Canadian terrorism cases is that most of the terrorism charges in Canada have been uh, laid against individuals who are inspired by Islamic extremist ideas. But I will put that into context and say that the majority of our terrorism prosecutions, we most often see terrorism charges laid before the act of violence. And again, context is important here. Um, Preparatory acts are criminalized when the criminal act being prepared is terrorism in a way that we don't see for any other type of violence, right? And... um, So it really backs up the point at which law enforcement can start criminal investigations when the investigation is about terrorism. So most of our terrorism charges in Canada have come when law enforcement is investigating an individual or group for suspected terrorism, and that's when we see the charges. Most of the time when an act of violence that does meet the definition of terrorism is successful and actually um, the group or individual is successful in carrying out that violence, we don't see terrorism charges because 
it adds an additional burden, proving all those elements I just laid out to the prosecutor, but doesn't increase the sentence. Um, And so we, you know, we can think back to the Quebec mosque shooting. We can think back to the van attack in Toronto. Neither of those were charged with terrorism, despite the fact that officials within the Canadian government frequently used those attacks as examples of terrorism offenses that were um, ideologically motivated. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And that issue came up in both of those cases. And it begs the question of what what constitutes an ideology is is hatred in ideology. Certainly there are ideologies where hatred of another or hatred of a specific group is very much a component. But is it enough on its own to constitute an ideology? Well, that's a great question. Ideology is not defined anywhere in the law. And none of our terrorism cases to date have attempted to define what that means. And, you know, when you're law enforcement, you may not see hatred as being sufficient to be ideological, but there's nothing in the criminal code definition that says an ideology even needs to be coherent, right? So if it is a system of ideas that motivates your beliefs in the world, that might be sufficient, but that's not how we tend to think about it. Um, And our courts and the current law hasn't done a good job of, of clarifying what that means. What does that really mean when we're talking about ideology? And what we tend to rely on is this idea of religious motivation, or it's not even addressed in the court cases, and it comes to be a know-it-when-you-see-it type of thing, which is problematic. And not just in terms of the application of the law, but in terms of those who are actually on the ground at local law enforcement levels, having to investigate offenses and trying to decide is this a hate crime? Is this standard act of violence or is this terrorism? When there's not kind of a clear understanding of what could actually be grouped in terrorism, our law enforcement and security officials might be missing a lot. And that's really problematic. Well, and yeah, a lot hinges on this investigation here. I mean, there's so much we don't know about this suspect, so much we don't know about the investigation, obviously, what's led police to this conclusion. Obviously, if this individual had ties to certain groups or, you know, had a a real specific political purpose in trying to, you know, carry out this horrific act of violence, that may change the conversation dramatically. So I think at this point, then I guess we need to wait for those details, don't we? Yeah, and I will say that Something that has been a little bit of a changing trend is that in the last year and a half, we have seen two um, cases where murder was originally charged, both in Toronto. One was someone inspired by the ISIS movement, another one who was inspired by the ISIL ideology or ISIL movement, um, where they were originally charged with murder. And after an investigation, law enforcement changed those charges to be murder and terrorism. Um, So there is um, scope to see that that change. Um, now, both of those came out of Toronto. Whether or not that'll apply in London as well remains to be seen. But um, I, I think that that is a, a positive trend because it is saying we could be charging these people for murder, but we're going to go the extra step to denounce this specific act of violence as yeah. terrorism. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Professor West, appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Leah West, Associate Professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at uh, Carleton University and focusing uh, on issues around national security and intelligence. So, yeah, there's a specific purpose uh, that exists for a terrorism charge. You know, 
so we've got some direct parallels, obviously, to those two high-profile cases, the uh, Quebec City Mosque massacre and, and the Toronto van attack. The more direct parallel with Quebec City obviously appears to be, you know, hatred of Muslims. The van attack has the parallel, obviously, of the, the method of, of murder. There's a common thread of hatred in all of this, hatred of Muslims or hatred of women or hatred of society. Does that constitute an ideology? Maybe it does. You could argue it does. The, the law doesn't spell out how you define an ideology. In terms of investigating and prosecuting this, charge of terrorism would be an additional burden on the Crown, something additional to prove. It's not going to result in a, a longer prison term necessarily, but is there a need to identify it as that and denounce it as such? Now, part of this can depend on what else comes of this investigation. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of important factors that come into play here. Whether it was, strictly speaking, terrorism or not, shouldn't change how we view it, shouldn't change how we as a society condemn it, shouldn't change as a society how we address these issues that lead to that kind of extreme hatred. But so much we don't know at this point. You know, there doesn't appear to be any kind of obvious uh, paper trail or social media trail in terms of this uh, young man who's been charged. Involvement in any kind of groups or following certain individuals, groups online, or any of that. So there's, there's so much we don't know at this point. Now, as you've been hearing on the news today, it sounds as though the federal government is moving to change the rules for returning travelers. The Canadians who are fully vaccinated, sounds like in early July this will officially take effect, will only need to be tested upon arrival, but will not have to quarantine. Now, it makes sense. I mean, you know, things are moving in this direction. Obviously, we need to recognize the, the science of vaccination. We need to incentivize vaccination. As I mentioned, the uh, the expert advisory panel set up by the federal government uh, produced their report a couple of weeks ago that, that recommended making this change. Joining us to talk more about is one of the members of that panel, Dr. David Naylor, is also co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. He's a professor of medicine and president emeritus, University of Toronto. Dr. Naylor, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Delighted to be back, Rob. All right, let me get your initial impressions of uh, what you heard today and, and whether you think things are moving in the right direction here. I, I'm encouraged things are moving in the right direction. You know, the, this is uh, an interesting time in that everyone's tiptoeing a little bit. Um, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the, the new variant, the so-called Delta variant, has people uh, reasonably uh, uneasy. It's more infectious than the Alpha, the B117 that was previously dominant, so there is room for some caution here. But I think this is a step in the right direction, and uh, glad to hear it. I, you know, there will be some who say, well, why is it only Canadians? Why isn't this why more, more wide open to travelers? Um, and I think that's a reasonable question to ask, but uh, definitely glad to see that we are starting to think about using vaccination status to make some decisions. And Rob, just to say, um, Borders are part of this, but, you know, more generally, I think Canadians need some guidance at the individual level yeah. uh, that takes vaccine status into account as we try to normalize over the next couple of months. Eventually, we, you know, vaccines will no longer be an issue. I think we'll have a high enough level of background immunity that, you know, we kind of stand down checking people's vaccine status. But you do wonder how we're going to navigate the summer where, you know, a growing number of us have two shots and... Uh, there's going to be people who choose not to be vaccinated at all. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. 
It is. And, you know, for the most part, governments in Canada are taking the approach that, you know, we'll, we'll just we'll build up enough immunity that we can ease restrictions for everyone. But, I mean, there are circumstances. I mean, already Alberta's made the decision that if you're fully vaccinated and you're considered a close contact, as long as you don't have symptoms, you don't have to quarantine. And, and that makes sense. It's a recognition of, of the science of vaccination. It, it, it seems to make sense when it comes to uh, the quarantine rules around travel. So there are some some circumstances where, yes, we, we do need to recognize vaccination status, right? I, I think so. And I, I think that immediately leads to, you know, the, the questions of how you document it. Yeah. Um, you know, most people are comfortable with the idea that we're going to have to produce some vaccine documentation to travel internationally. That's that's a done deal. I mm-hmm. think there's mixed feelings about having to document to move across provincial borders. Uh, it sort of feels a little un-Canadian that we have to kind of check at a border to whether we're vaccinated to go from, say, right. uh, Ontario to Manitoba or wherever. Um, I think the other question that's going to come up is, what do you do about who gets to dine indoors? Uh, or does everyone have to be spaced out? Because I'm a, if I'm a restaurant owner, I might say, well, I'd like to get back closer to capacity, and maybe I can just only have people indoors who are fully vaccinated. I don't know if that's going to be against the law in some provinces or municipalities or whether the civil libertarians will take issue with it, but you can imagine that's going to start to bubble up. And in the U.S., we already know that they have separate areas of seating for people who are unvaccinated. Yeah. And they often have to pay a premium ticket because the seating density is less compared to those who are fully vaccinated who get a discounted ticket. So, you know, this stuff is shaking out. It's a giant global experiment. Countries are doing different things. Denmark has a sort of vaccine certificate or passport domestically as a temporary measure. Everyone's finding their way mm-hmm. in what is an unprecedented situation. But as part of it about incentivizing vaccination, as, as we get to close to 70% here, maybe somewhat predictably, the, the pace is starting to slow. We're starting to bump into this group that's procrastinating or on the fence or whatever it is. How do we address that? And is this a part of that strategy? There are mixed reviews on whether uh, use of vaccine certification or some type of you know, incentive, disincentive in terms of what you can access will be effective in reaching those individuals. One of the, one of the things that is pretty clear is that you know, if, if we get to 75%, which seems quite feasible based on the polling, and we've got first doses there, um, you know, there's a level on which you could argue that making sure we, we spend energy getting the second doses into those people is the top priority before we chase the recent or hesitant 25% who are still in play. So th- that's, that's a strategic decision. Um, but yes, there are those who say that one of the advantages of having uh, a vaccine certificate program of some type is it's a reminder that people who haven't finished their series, gotten the second shot, or who have never had a first shot uh, at all and who are reluctant that, you know, vaccination has has some advantages. It doesn't just protect you and your loved ones from the disease. Uh, It's going to open up society for you because that's the way the world's going to be. So I've I've seen both sides argued. I'm more in the the camp that says, let's try to to incentivize with uh, some form of vaccination uh, advantages short term, not permanent, no permanent immunoprivilege, strongly opposed to something that sort of segregates society that way. But as an expedient, as a temporary measure, it might work, and I, I think it makes some sense. 
And in the meantime, it's probably safe to assume that most people who stepped up and got their first dose already are more than eager to get their second dose. You know, we're we're having to pivot a little more quickly here. The the Delta variant has changed the equation a little bit. So it's a critical moment, isn't it? I mean, supply is looking good and the governments are starting to to adjust their strategy. What's your sense of where we're at on, on moving to second doses? I think it's been really encouraging to see people move to shorten the interval and to try to get these second doses really to the forefront. And you're seeing nationally, exactly as you say, Rob, one province after another moving to put more weight on second doses. So I, I think it's it's rolling out as as well as you could hope. I do worry, as you do, about you know the some percentage of the population who just are uneasy. I keep saying to people, you know, this is going to be one where people have to be gently persuaded as well as incentivized. Um, you know, beating up on people who are scared of uh, vaccine has never been an effective strategy. We all have irrational fears that uh, we regard as, you know, perfectly understandable, or maybe we think they're irrational. But in any case, you know, everyone everyone has something that sets them off, and there there are people out there who are very uneasy about vaccination. So that conversation has to be handled with care and support. Uh, And I think a few incentives on the margin will help. But boy, we're getting there and it's very, very encouraging. Yeah, I think that's the takeaway. Well, uh, more at uh, COVID19ImmunityTaskForce.ca and and the work being done by the task force. Dr. Naylor, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Pleasure. A pleasure always, Rob. Likewise, all the best. That is Dr. David Naylor, uh, Professor of Medicine, President Emeritus University of Toronto, co-chair of the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, and as mentioned, was uh, part of this expert advisory panel that presented its report to the federal government a couple of weeks ago saying, end the hotel quarantine, that fully vaccinated travelers test them upon return, and that's it. No quarantine, nothing more. Makes sense. Uh, For partially vaccinated travelers, they recommended a... uh, test before departure and a test upon arrival and even for for non-vaccinated travelers that we don't need the hotel quarantine a test before departure test upon arrival quarantine at home for 14 days or if you're prepared to get a a a test on day seven a negative there would that would be sufficient and you'd be done quarantine so yeah i think we can move in that direction and we'll see what more ottawa comes up with Now, welcome to the Shower of the Program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, certainly what we're hearing out of Ottawa is that uh, things are progressing in terms of starting to open up the border. Uh, by early July, it uh, sounds like fully vaccinated travelers will no longer have to quarantine for 14 days. It would still be a requirement to uh, test negative upon arrival. But I think now our rules are finally going to reflect uh, the science and the benefits uh, of vaccination, as obviously it should. Now, this is obviously going to tie in with uh, what ends up happening with the Canada-U.S. border, but there's still some uncertainty on that point. We've heard June 21st talked about as a a possible date for some kind of reopening, and uh, a decision needs to be made one way or the other. We've kind of been going month by month in extending these border measures. It it, it is a little odd because it's pretty easy to fly to the United States, but driving across the border for non-essential travel is, is not possible. If the quarantine requirements change, that would facilitate, I suppose, maybe a little more travel back and forth across the border. But, you know, for border communities, there's a real need to to get that land border reopened. Business groups on both sides of the border are pushing both Ottawa and Washington for some changes. 
uh, released a letter this week saying as of June 22nd, we should allow fully vaccinated travelers to cross the border. We should mutually recognize vaccine credentials, and we need to produce a plan that includes some clear guidelines for all other travelers, regardless of uh, method of transportation. So joining us to talk a bit more about where things stand and uh, why it's so important to move forwards on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Mark Agnew who's uh, Vice President of Policy and International Affairs with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Mark, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What's your sense of what this all means, the announcement today about quarantine and what we're hearing about talks on the border? Where's all this going, as best you can tell? Well, um, it's moving forward uh, pretty glacially is the answer. Um, I I mean, the announcement today, I think, was very much a baby steps uh, progress and uh, an initial step for Canadians not having to have a quarantine, you know, hotel, but um, we're still waiting for a plan. And actually, even in the announcement today, uh, there's not a firm date for implementation. The government had talked about uh, some time in early July, but uh, we're still not there. So I think um, as much as today was a welcome first step, I mean, we shouldn't underestimate how much work there is left to go. And um, as you sort of alluded to in your opening remarks, I mean, I think having a plan for vaccinated Canadians, partially vaccinated travelers, Mm -hmm. travelers that aren't uh, vaccinated at all and, and making sure that it is actually grounded in the government's expert panel report, which is a bunch of medical folks that have gotten together and advised government on what a border plan uh, should look like. Right. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, as, as vaccines are being rolled out and restrictions are easing, you know, we're, we're seeing and are expected to continue to see some economic recovery. But, you know, it's it, it, we're really going to need that border reopened, I, I think, to, to really see some some payoff on that side. Why is it it's so important from an economic perspective that we, we get the border figured out? Um, so there's three um, there are types of business activity that we point to uh, most readily. I mean, there's lots of different ones beyond these three, but three real top line ones. First of all, uh, you know, tourism. Um, I mean, there's an absolute uh, sort of, you know, lifeblood that tourism provides to many communities across the country. Um, The second is around people who provide uh, what I would call kind of technician type services. So repairing machinery equipment, for instance, things that can't be done virtually, um, being trained on how to, you know, fly planes and helicopters. I mean, you can't do a flight simulator from your basement. You have to be there to actually go into the flight simulator. Uh, So those types of business uh, activities. And then there's uh, one that people don't talk a lot about, and that's sales, uh, business development activities, marketing. If you're going out and meeting new clients, I mean, pressing the flesh is absolutely critical, meeting people in person to build those trust relationships. And if people don't have the ability to easily travel abroad, it's much more difficult to do that. And that means ultimately lost business opportunities for uh, Canadian companies uh, internationally. Right. Now, this this letter that was released yesterday has mentioned uh, business groups on both sides of the border. So uh, I think there's a recognition from both Canadian perspective and an American perspective that we need to move forward. Um, does it seem that, you know, the, the blame here is kind of equally shared between Ottawa and Washington? Is there maybe a little more of a cautious approach from, from the Canadian side? What's what's holding back progress? Do we know? Well, I mean, I'm not in the room, but I think um, it's fair to say that certainly uh, on our side of the border, there's um, more of a, a cautious approach and um, also to the dynamics that people have seen play out publicly between some of the provinces and the federal government, I think, have, uh, you know, made the discussions here quite a bit more difficult than they otherwise, you know, should be. Um, but, you know, again, the, what we constantly are now pointing towards is the expert panel of medical advisors that were put together. Uh, it wasn't a group of, you know, business people. I mean, these are medical right. professionals who said, here's the roadmap. And that's what we think should be the basis for reopening the border. 
If if it doesn't open on June twenty first, does that mean we're we're stuck until July twenty first? I mean, we we seem to be going month by month on extending this. I I don't know if we're going to see any significant changes on on June twenty first. What, what does this mean for for the timeline? Do you think? Well, um, the way that the government has been using these timelines is a sort of a, a thirty day rollover. So it's kind of in the uh, twenty to twenty second of every month that they uh, they sort of announce the measure and it'll proceed for another 30 days um i mean there's nothing that stops uh you know both sides from saying you know on july 10th we want to have a change but just based on the rhythm that they've used uh to date i think that sort of window is uh likely what folks will, will stick to but you know if there's a good solution that comes up before the you know the 22nd of the month then let's let's absolutely jump uh, jump on it <laughs> And when it comes to vaccination, I mean, you know, clearly that's that's our ticket out of this. And, and so vaccination strategy is very much an economic recovery strategy. Do you, do you think this helps incentivize vaccinations, you know, knowing that, you know, doors open to travel, knowing that, you know, the quarantine onerous quarantine rules don't apply anymore? Does this have some some added benefit in, in spurring people to get vaccinated, do you think? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I mean, the, the you know, the 70 percent of people who uh, have, you know, sort of jumped at the opportunity to get vaccinated or so, they're going to go ahead and do it. Absolutely. Um, it is that last sort of 20 to 30 percent that's the most difficult. And incentives like these, I think, are one tool that can be used. But I wouldn't want to leave you with the impression that, uh, you know, our view is that only vaccinated people should be allowed to travel. I mean, there should be still, nonetheless, a set of rules and safeguards in place for people who uh, who aren't vaccinated or partially vaccinated because there will be people who, for very you know good medical reasons, might not be able to. And I think we don't want to say to them, you're not allowed to travel, but just be very clear with them, you know, this is the plan and in the current, you know, time frame, these are the, 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 the rules that um, would apply to you. All right. Well, we hope for, for an announcement soon. Hear much more at uh, chamber.ca. Mark, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, that's uh, Mark Agnew with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, BEP of Policy and International Affairs. So they're keeping a close eye on all of this, understandably so, and uh, one of the signatories of the letter released this week, including the um, Retail Council of Canada, Business Council of Canada, you've got in the U.S., U.S. Chamber of Commerce, National Retail Federation, so other groups involved as well. And saying at the same time, too, look, we're, we're standing by, we're ready to help with this in any way. So clearly, yeah, there's an economic imperative in in trying once again to normalize uh, travel across the Canada-U.S. border. And I think he's probably right when he talks about more of a reluctance coming from the Canadian side, that we're taking a more cautious approach. And you know what? Earlier on in this pandemic, maybe that was understandable. Certainly the U.S. got hit a lot harder than we did. But that's kind of been flipped around now. The U.S. is a lot further along on vaccination. So you would think from a Canadian perspective, there's less to worry about on our side that maybe the Americans would almost worry more because there's not as many fully vaccinated uh, Canadians. But I think, you know, it's, it's a good time. It's an ideal time to move forward here. You know, certainly there's some concern about uh, variants and one variant in particular and, uh, you know, the impact that might have in the coming months. Again, I think, you know, we can still deal with all of that, but at the same time recognize the, the real benefit of, of vaccines. I mean, it's been a remarkable achievement. And that even though this, this virus has thrown us some real curveballs with more transmissible variants, and even in the case of this Delta variant, perhaps even more virulent, on top of being more transmissible, that our vaccines can handle it. But with this one, it's, it's clear that the real payoff comes with full vaccination. 
So the travel rules, the border rules should absolutely reflect that, no question. So we're taking some baby steps in that direction. The announcement today from the federal government that come early July, things are going to start to change regarding the quarantine rules for fully vaccinated travelers. Makes complete sense. Up until this past weekend, there was a statue of Edgerton Ryerson at the university that for now still bears his name. Now, that statue in recent weeks and months had become rather vandalized and was finally uh, toppled by protesters on Sunday and uh, taken away. I think it was uh, tossed in the water. University says they have no intention of uh, replacing that statue. And the conversation now has shifted to whether the name of Ryerson University is going to be changed to something else. Now, all of this is happening in, in the context of the conversation around residential schools. Right? A, a necessary conversation, I think, that we're having in Canada. But what do people know about Edgerton Ryerson? Edgerton Ryerson was never a prime minister of Canada, was never a cabinet minister, and really was not directly involved with residential schools. Edgerton Ryerson was an educator. And that was his, uh, essentially his mission in life. You know, the idea of free public education, a lot of that stems from him and the ideas he advanced in the uh, 19th century. That education, he says, should be as common as water and as free as air. So what's the connection here between uh, Ryerson and residential schools? Because, look, there is a connection, but do people know what that is? As we talk about the life and the legacy of Edgerton Ryerson, what's being left out of the conversation? Well, someone who uh, has uh, written a lot about this is... um, Patrice Dutille, he's a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University, senior fellow at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary History at the University of Toronto, and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Professor Dutille, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so as you've been watching all of this unfold in the protests and the debates and uh, everything happening in, in particular at your university, what, what have you made of all of it? Well, it's very sad. I have to say it's very sad, and I think it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what Edgerton Ryerson stood for. And, um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's horribly unjust what's happened and the build-up to it. Um, people have not taken the trouble of educating themselves on, on what Edgerton Ryerson stood for, and uh, we've had terrible violence over the weekend. People could have been hurt. Um, so I mean, it's 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 a fundamental misunderstanding, and, and again, I think that uh, those people who are in position to help educate, to to shed some light on the life of an extraordinary man, simply have failed to do so, and that's doubly sad. Yeah. Well, let's address then, you know, the point about why he's he's been dragged into this conversation. Now, Edgerton Ryerson died, I think it was 1882, so he wasn't yes. even alive as we were implementing the residential school system across the no, country. No, he wasn't. Many decades before, 1847, he offered some advice to the Canadian government. Yes. So, I mean... Which was not the Canadian government at the time, right? No, it wasn't. It was the the government, uh, the United Province of Canada. And at the time, they wrote to him because he was the superintendent of education in the section we called Canada West, which is Ontario today. 
So, I mean, this was going to be something that had you know, nothing to do with, with him. Um, he was about schooling, elementary school and, and, and secondary school at a time when it was less important. And remember, I mean, there was practically nothing going on, right? I mean, schooling was very uh, liberal in the sense that, you know, people could do whatever they wanted with their kids. And Edgerton uh, Ryerson is making the claim that, no, you have to send your kids to school. Anyway, he's asked by the government to comment on the idea of doing something to help educate Indigenous people on farming. Now, Edgerton Ryerson knew a lot about farming. He was an expert farmer himself, and he knew the Indigenous community. He spoke the language. He spoke Ojibwe. He had spent his youth as a missionary to the Ojibwe. He had friends among the Ojibwe, and so he was a perfectly good guy to consult, as we would say today. He wrote a letter, and that was it. That was it. Out of that came an experiment, a pilot program of two schools in Ontario. Um, and the idea here was very much a, a Ryerson idea, which was to do things that would be practical. Use the morning to teach, you know, to teach reading and writing and math. And he thought, you know, it'd be important for the, for the students to learn accounting so that they can do, you know, proper management of their farms. And in the afternoon, they would do the work necessary to learn, you know, the manual uh, requirements of running a farm. Again, let's remember, we're talking about the 1840s here, all right? It's before mechanization. That's it. He was never, he was never, reco- he, you know, he, he was not consulted by the McDonald government when it decided to set up its residential schools. Those two small residential schools closed only a few years after they were set up in the 1850s. There was no money, there was no interest, and uh, the whole initiative collapsed. That's it. What's important to remember here is that the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission issued a report, the first report, 10,000, sorry, 1,050 pages. And it mentions, it mentions Edgerton Ryerson a few times in passing. It never says that Edgerton Ryerson had anything to do with residential schools. I think that's pretty important. And yet we have this fundamental misunderstanding. Well, I mean, let's address part of this. So, so in that, that 1847 report that he wrote, I mean, he, he did talk about the idea of, uh, you know, installing or instilling civilization in uh, yes. North American yeah. Indians, right? And, and yeah. you know, yeah. in the context of what residential schools became, I think people are, are drawing the link there. But obviously, he wasn't talking about, you know, forcing, you know, children out of their homes and sending them to these schools or taking away their names and, and no. all of these aspects of residential no. schools. That that wasn't what he was addressing, no. was it? No, not at all. Not at all. It wasn't in the it wasn't in Ryerson's style at all. That was far from it. Now people used the word civilization all the time in those days. That's the way they talked. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have this the significance of today. It doesn't have the connotations of today. I think people have to be you know have to be realistic and have to be uh, reasonable. This is a different time. It was 180 years ago. People didn't talk the way we talk now. And, you know, this is where historians can be very practical and very helpful in making sure that people understand, you know, what exactly was meant in those days. What was the context? People talk like that all the time. Um, Ryerson was of the view, and again, very typical of educated people at the time, that the only way for the indigenous people to move forward was, in fact, to assimilate. And, you know, that was the truth. That was the truth in those days. That's the way people thought. They thought that Indigenous people had no future. They had to learn to settle on a farm. They had to learn to be part of the economy. And that's the way people thought. And and so, I mean, in his day, 
in his day, I mean, he was a massive progressive. He was way beyond the pale, <laughs> way yeah. beyond the pale. Uh, for him to be accused today of being somehow implicated in residential schools, I, you know, again, it's, it's, it's just... It's just a sad commentary on our society that we cannot have debates that will bring things like this to light. Yeah. Well, it's an important point because, yes, if we were to, to uh, use a time machine and, and pluck uh, Edgerton Ryerson into today, he would probably not seem like a, an enlightened individual. In the context of the 1840s, uh, for somebody who was building those relationships with indigenous communities, he would have seen, yep. as, as you said, you know, incredibly progressive at the time. Yes, he was. And he had, you know, he, the indigenous people wanted those schools. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten involved. They wanted those schools. And uh, that's why he was approached, because he could bridge the various communities. He was a remarkable man. And that's why the government of Ontario decided to call the, the new institution that they were creating for returning uh, war veterans um, an institution that would be practical, very much in the Ryerson uh, spirit. Uh, teach practical skills, but at the same time, you know, provide post-secondary education. People, you know, the soldiers coming back needed, needed jobs, they needed practical experience. Ryerson said, Ryerson University, sorry, at the time it was a technical institute, uh, set up a nursing school, a journalism school, an engineering school, that kind of stuff, architecture, practical stuff for men coming back from the front uh, so that they, they can integrate into society. The very same spirit that animated Edgerton Ryerson, you know, 100 years before. So it was interesting. So he he dies in in 1882. Um, yes. Sixteen years later, fifty years after he wrote that report in 1847, there was a report done for the Canadian government in 1898 that included, I believe, as an appendage, what Edgerton Ryerson had written in 1847. And because then that mm. overall report shaped government policy, I guess Ryerson has has been linked to that then by extension. Yeah, it's, it's guilty by association. Even though the spirit was completely different, his his intentions were completely different, the product was completely different, um, there is no link. There is no link. And it's this, again, that, that's just so totally sad. It's a link that's being made in the 21st century, and it simply has no place. So it, it feels like we've already made up our minds. We've already decided that he's he's in the category of, of the bad guys of history. And, you know, we saw what happened with the statue. I mean, you're, you're closer to the conversation. I suspect that the name Ryerson University is probably not long for this world. So where, where do we go from here? Well, I pointed out in an article today in the National Post that the implications of removing Ryerson's name um, are, are important. The reality is that in Ontario, a lot of our institutions are named after colonial figures. We have Carleton University, we have Brock University, we have you know Confeder we, we, uh, Confederation College, Centennial College, Queen's University, the University of Waterloo, Windsor University, named after the, the royal family. I mean, we are chock-a-block with royal, colonial, imperialist uh, names. If Ryerson is associated as an imperialist, as someone, as a white man who imposed white values on indigenous people, like, where is this going to stop? Um, and are we going to be going through this kind of stress and, 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 and distortion and, and tension um, at every turn? I'm just saying, you know, this is, this is an unfortunate turn, and there needs to be a process to, to make sure that we can go through 
these changes. If changes need be, and I'm still not convinced that changes need be, you know, all these people that, you know, where, where, where post-secondary institutions have been named in their honor uh, did great things in our society. Edgerton Ryerson did great things. This is the only guy who was championing public schools. He was championing school for boys and girls and, you know, mandatory school attendance and, you know, uh, Canadian textbooks. Uh, all the things that we associate, that we take for granted as, 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 as essential to Canadian life. Edgerton Ryerson was the guy making that case. He was the, the cry in the wilderness that was making that case. Not everybody was making that case. Edgerton Ryerson was. And in recognition, people, you know, the government gave him a position of authority. He had a strong guiding hand in terms of administrating the system. He, he insisted on school boards so that parents could have a say in their education of their kids. You know, he brought tremendous, tremendous enlightenment to Ontario society. That's why Ontarians treasured his memory. And that's why the government of Ontario said, you know, it's a good idea. He started a, you know, he was part of of the University of Victoria, which became the University of Toronto. He started the first normal school to teach teachers how to teach. Uh, It made perfect sense for the government. And I'm simply saying, those values are still our values. And for that reason, you know, Ryerson's uh, contribution should still be remembered, should still be honored. Some important points. As mentioned, that piece is up to date. People can find it at nationalpost.com and uh, more as well from you at uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Dr. Dutille, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's uh, Patrice Dutille uh, at uh, Ryerson University, uh, as it's called for now. He's a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration, a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, and also a senior fellow at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary History at the University of Toronto. So there's no understanding public education in Canada without understanding the the influence and the impact of Edgerton Ryerson, who was a big, big proponent of public schools, free, available public schools, which was kind of a, a radical, progressive idea at the time. So by all means, let's let's talk about what he wrote in 1847 about the ideas they talked about it at the time of uh, Indian schools. What kind of ideas did he advance? What was the context of the day? If this is somebody who was, uh, you know, a, a horrible racist, even of his own era, well, then how do we explain, you know, the, the lengthy relationships he had, that he was able to speak Ojibwe, that he had these relationships? Well, then in what context? How do, how do we understand that? So here's the thing. I don't know that much of, of history that is taught in Canada teaches about this individual. Because as we go through the list of important names of history, you've got prime ministers and fathers of confederation and, and all of these things. Maybe you could argue that maybe Edgerton Ryerson isn't important enough to, to warrant a lot of focus. But if we've now lumped him into this category of the villains of history, then maybe we owe it, not necessarily to him, but just we owe it to history to have a full airing of all of this. And, and I think we can put all of this into proper context. And like anybody else, any other figure of history, let's list out the bad. Let's list out the good. And you know what? There are plenty of people where the bad far outweighs the good. And by all means, then, let's put them in that category of the bad guys of history. I think when you look at the complete history of Edgerton Ryerson, though, it's, it's not as it's been portrayed as of late. Man passed away, was certainly a very elderly man for that, uh, for that 
day and age, died in 1882. So everything that happened afterward, all the residential schools that were implemented, all the policy that supported that, he had nothing to do with it. Again, we're, we're talking about a report that he wrote in 1847, 20 years before Canada became a country, uh, and even longer, obviously, before residential schools became a policy. Second World War ended uh, over 75 years ago, but there are still some lingering mysteries. There are still some Canadians who fought in that war uh, whose fate we just don't know. And uh, we're listed and remain listed uh, as missing. But an interesting story out of Germany this week uh, suggests that uh, maybe we might have found some answers with regard to some Canadians. There is a tombstone in the German village of Auerstedt, I believe is how you pronounce it, A-E-U-R-S-T-E-D-T. The tombstone states an unknown American soldier killed in March of 1945. According to one German researcher, though, it's actually Canadian airmen who were buried there. Canadian airmen uh, who went missing in March of 1945. Uh, there's a group in Germany that's uh, been searching for missing airmen from the Second World War. And they spent some time investigating this particular gravestone in Germany. So this, we're told, may involve an Allied bomber that crashed outside the village in March of 1945. And before it went down, one member of the crew apparently jumped out, died when his parachute didn't open. So this research has involved speaking to eyewitnesses who actually are, are still alive and what they saw happen at the time. So th this would certainly be, I think, significant from a, a Canadian perspective. And so joining us uh, for some thoughts on you know, what we know about this situation and how significant this discovery might be, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, David O'Keefe. He's a military historian, professor of history, documentarian, best-selling author. His most recent book, Seven Days in Hell, Canada's Battle for Normandy and the Rise of the Black Watch Snipers. David, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. So what do you make of this discovery? you think this uh, is, is legit? Um, well, as far as we can see, it's moving in that direction. I mean, we probably won't know until all the proper authorities have signed off on it, and that's going to be quite the bureaucratic process, <laughs> to say the least. But a lot of times you find that these gifted amateurs, if you will, these people who dedicate themselves to doing this, tend to strike gold more than they don't. So in this particular case, it seems to be that they're indeed onto something here. The question is exactly what is still kind of up in the air. Now, we did obviously have some Canadian bomber crews that didn't return from, from their missions mm -hmm. that went down, and some cases uh, an unknown fate. But if we look at what, what seems to be the timeline here, March of, of 1945, how, how does that line up with what we know about any missing Canadian bomber crews? Well, from what we can see, there are... Uh, there is one, and we thought originally that there was going to be, because this is a very um, busy area, if you will, of Germany. This is the area where a lot of the synthetic fuel plants were. They, it had been a target since, whoa, 43, this area. So there was a lot of traffic, not just Canadian, but, of course, British and, and American bombers as well of all different types going over. Um, but from what we understand, the, the researcher over there, the local researcher, has been able, using a process of elimination, has been able to eliminate a whole slew of others. And so now we're down to probably just a couple of unknowns. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean we'll be Canadian. There's a possibility it could be American, it could be British. Um, but 
you know, this really is just about a process of elimination and cutting down the odds. And that seems to be where we are. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, here we are in 2021, and we're still, still able to, to investigate these matters, try to yeah. gather evidence that, that does still exist. So where do we go from here? I mean, what, what else can we do to, to solve this uh, story here? Well, it's really amazing because the forensics, I mean, the stuff we can do now with forensics with DNA testing is absolutely incredible. But, I mean, you have to realize that this all started... Um, at the end of World War II. As a matter of fact, it was the British who came up with something called the Missing and Recovery Inquiry Service, MRES. And they started working in early 1945, and there was a, a reason for this, not only for the obvious reason of trying to figure out and make identifications as to, you know, uh, who a you know, set of remains may belong to. But there was actually a bit of more of a, a sinister reason for their, um, for not that they were working in a sinister fashion, but because they found out as the war was ending that sadly um, more airmen than we'd probably want to imagine were actually murdered on the ground by either German civilians uh, seeking revenge or by German authorities. So they created the MRES to actually do forensic investigations just to establish the cause of death. In other words, were you actually killed, if you will, legitimately in a crash? Or could you have met some sort of nefarious ending on the ground? So, you know, fast forward and, you know, now the technology is developing and, um, you know, but there's also this bureaucratic process that I mentioned where, you know, you could do DNA testing um, on, say, you know, for instance, uh, relatives of who you suspect may be on the plane. But trying to get that done is a very difficult thing to do because you're dealing with several different layers of authorities. Right now, the remains are in the custody of the Germans, which is standard. The remains were found on their soil. They are going to do their testing and their identification process and see if they can at least give a preliminary report on this. If it turns out that they believe that this is a member of a British Commonwealth crew, i.e. Canadian, New Zealand, Australian, British, South African, then all that is then sent to England. And they will work, the RAF takes over, and they will work hand-in-glove with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, who then, if they can establish that indeed, you know, one or more of these sets of remains belong to a Canadian airman, that will be sent to Director of History and Heritage in Ottawa, where their identification team will then go to work. So we're talking a multi-year process before we probably get the final results on this. Which I guess makes sense at one level. I mean, it does seem unfortunate. I mean, there, there is one aspect of this investigation that suggests maybe we could skip some steps here. We should, because mm. what was found while exhuming the grave, the researchers say, was a fragment of a disc. And these were kind of the precursor to dog tags, essentially identity discs. And one of them had the three letters C-A-N, which would be the abbreviation mm-hmm. used for Canada. I mean, if, if that discovery holds up, is there a way to maybe short-circuit some of that lengthy process, or it is well, what it is? You would, yeah, certainly you would hope. I mean, right now there's circumstantial evidence, and it's, it's rather scanty, but if you're just using the process of elimination, it does appear to be a Canadian Lancaster, or at least a Lancaster with a Canadian crew. 
Um, they have found uh, evidence on the site that suggests it is a Lancaster and no other type of aircraft, which then, of course, makes it either British or Canadian. Um, and that identity disc, if it indeed it is an identity disc, and there still is some controversy of whether that is what it is or not, um, it could relate directly back to a Canadian airman. So if that's the case, ideally, I mean, I'm, you know, if, if I'm king of the world, I am going to ask you know, the families reach out to the families privately, ask for DNA samples and send them directly to the Germans and have the Germans establish it immediately without necessarily having to go through all the hoops. But unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, there is a protocol that needs to be followed in this particular case. And it would be lovely to speed up the you know, speed up the system if we can. Uh, but that just doesn't seem to be the architecture in place at the moment. Assuming this individual is Canadian and assuming he has uh, some, some surviving relatives, I mean, obviously it would be hugely mm-hmm. significant to them and a lot of families had to deal with that mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the war, right? They're not knowing. But what, what is the broader significance, do you think, of, of this kind of a discovery? Well, I think, I mean, in this case, it may not just be, from what I understand, it's not just the remains of one uh, airmen. There could be several in here. As a matter of fact, I think they were suggesting that the entire crew could be buried in this uh, particular plot. And if that's the case, I mean, it does bring closure, if you will, for the families uh, to a certain degree. And I think the broader question really goes down to, you know, uh, going back into 1945 and, and thinking about what it's like to receive that dreaded telegram. And, you know, the telegram and a lot of them that were, uh, when it came to the Air Force, were not uh, that your uh, son in this particular case was killed or your son or your father or your husband was killed in action, but rather missing in action. Almost all of the air crews were reported missing first. And then months or sometimes even years later would the confirmation come. So I think it's, um, it, it, when you take a look at it in that way, it is a distinctly painful chapter to be left in that emotional no man's land, if you will, of the missing. And I think in this particular case, it's uh, it's quite appropriate for the families. Now, this is interesting, Dave. Now, as I mentioned, we've written numerous books about Canada's military history. And, mm. uh, you know, the Google machine tells me that you have a book coming out next year called, interestingly enough, <laughs> Missing Presumed Dead. Is, is this a topic yeah. that you're currently uh, writing about? Yes, as a matter of fact, you can you, you can stand right up to my eyeballs on this. I'm uh, working on uh, working on a new book, actually, all about a crew that does go missing in uh, July of 1944. And I'll be honest with you: um, in 25 years of doing this professionally, I've never come across a story like this. This is, really will be something that will, you know, blow the socks off of, uh, you know, Canadians right across the country uh, to see uh, this story when it comes out. And that's about all I can tell you right now. Okay. <laughs> or my, my right. publisher will kill me. Um, but the good part about it is uh, Ted Barris and I, who have been out west before doing our oh, military yeah. history junket, we're going to be back out. We're going to come out in November to give you a preview so we're going to be both in Edmonton and Calgary in mid-November, so probably just around Remembrance Day. So by then, I think I'll be able to twist the arm of my publisher and, and you know, get him to allow me to uh, reveal a bit more and whet everybody's appetite. But it's, uh, it's going to be a big story, there's no doubt about it. 
Well, there you go. That's quite a tease. And yeah, hopefully we'll even be able to have a, an in-studio conversation at that time. So uh, looking forward to that, David. We'll, we'll yeah. leave it there for now. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Oh, thanks, Rob. Anytime. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, historian, best-selling author, uh, David O'Keefe. So he's uh, got a doozy coming by the sounds of it. And, um, yeah, so there you go. There's a little tease for something coming up this November. Uh, David O'Keefe, Ted Barris, maybe two of the most prominent uh, Canadian military historians, certainly both great storytellers. And, um, yeah, sounds like they got another one coming up uh, soon. So watch for that. In the meantime, uh, David's most recent called Seven Days in Hell. And so an interesting story coming out of Germany where German researchers believe they have found the remains of at least one Canadian, maybe more, that uh, were presumed, uh, that were missing and presumed dead back in March of 1945. So if we go by that timeline, as David said, we can kind of narrow it down to two, probably just one Lancaster crew. So the local legend of the time, according to the, these German researchers who have spoken with living eyewitnesses, is that a, a Canadian uh, Lancaster bomber was, was shot down. Uh, that one of the airmen parachuted out, but uh, the parachute didn't work or something happened. He died in the landing and that the plane crashed and essentially exploded because of the bombs that were still on it, but that they were able to recover some remains. So the pilot who jumped out was buried in this gravesite and apparently some remains of the other Canadians or that what they believed to be Canadians, even though for whatever reason, the... Um, the grave says an unknown American soldier killed in March 40, 1945, and that's all it says. So some compelling evidence that uh, these are Canadians or Canadian remains in that gravesite. And in that sense, yes, it, it is significant. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.